Alright, good morning everybody. Glad to see your smiling faces on supposedly the most terrible day of the year. Sorry about that. Uh, just do away with it, right? Anyway, uh, so I'm so glad you guys are here. So glad you made it. Makes my heart happy. It's not all about me, but I do love it. So thanks for coming. Um, my name is Jason Piffle. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point, And uh, I'm excited to be able to bring you God's word today. Uh, we have been cruising along in the book of Philippians, and so you can grab your Bible. Uh, there's an extra Bible in the front, a little tray in front of you if you don't have one. And flip over to Philippians, it's in the New Testament, chapter 2. Uh, we've been cruising along through this book uh, in our series called Advancing in Joy. And it's been a great series. I mean, Jamie has done an amazing job of really unpacking some pretty major things as we talk about uh, these portions of the Bible. And uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of a recap of what's happened the last few weeks, uh, we've talked about the, or answered this question of, is Jesus worth suffering for? This Jesus that we put on um, up on high who deserves to be there, when he gets right down to it, is he someone that we would follow with our entire lives, that we would give up so many different things because he's so amazing and he's worth it? Is he worth suffering for? We've also talked about who is Jesus theologically? Uh, is he is he created? Is he only is he God? Is he only man? Is he God and man together? The full, uh, fully divine and fully human. That's what we would believe. Uh, we talked about that. We also talked about this idea of Jesus capturing our hearts. So many times, if you're anything like me, you become a believer, and then uh, you're really excited at first, and then at some point in time, maybe things taper for you, and you're kind of like, man, I don't know that I'm as excited about Jesus as I once was. And so we talked about that, and like, is Jesus the focus of our affection? Is he number one in our lives? Is he the Lord of our lives? And so those were all great, great things to talk about. But now we enter Philippians 2, verse 19. And if you read this verse, uh, 19 to 30, and you get to the end of it, and you'll sit there and you'll go, hmm, kind of boring, nothing real exciting there. Honestly, I've yet to meet anybody who has memorized any of these verses unless they memorize the whole entire book, right? Like, that's the only, nobody goes and quotes these verses out of the book of Philippians because all these other things are so rich and amazing. And at first glance, you could look at these and go, it's a travel itinerary. That's not that exciting. That's like when you get to a chapter in the Bible and it's just all a bunch of names and you go, what's the point of that? It's very similar feeling when you kind of first look at it. And if that's all there was, we could probably just go home and you guys would feel really jilted because you got up an hour early this morning to come here, and that would be a real big bummer. But since there is more, I want to share that with you this morning because when I started going through this passage this week and the week before, uh, man, there's some rich, amazing things that I think uh, are really applied to our lives and really, I hope, are encouraging to all of you who are here this morning. So let me pray real quick, and we're going to talk about those things. Uh, God, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, thanks that we could be in this book, the book of Philippians, that, man, we just kind of cruise through this whole thing and try not to, as best we can to skip things that really, really matter in our lives, and we just talk about every single verse. And God, I pray that these verses today would impact our lives. I think they will. Uh, I think you're at work. I think your Holy Spirit's at work. And I think these are meaningful. And so, God, I pray that um, my words would be your words and not my own. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, cool. So uh, this morning, here's, here's, let me just tell you, kind of give you the punchline of kind of where I think things are going in this whole thing. 
Uh, when you look at this, it really is kind of separated into two kind of big chunks uh, of Scripture. And uh, one chunk kind of talks about Timothy. The other one kind of talks about Epaphroditus. Uh, but basically, when you boil it down, Paul is setting forth two examples of what the Christian life could look like for each and every single one of us. And he's saying in, verse, in chapter 1, leading into verse, uh, chapter 2, these are all the things that are kind of indicators of someone who's really tracking with Jesus. And now here's two examples, amazing examples, of ordinary guys who are living that out. But why? Why do we need an example like this? That's probably the question that I ask most often this week. Why do we need these examples? Because I think Paul knows something about the human condition. He knows something about every single one of us, and he knows something about the people in Philippi. He knows that we have a natural tendency to take church leaders, especially a guy like Paul, and to stick him up on a pedestal so high, and then maybe what comes out of your mouth is what has come out of my mouth. I'll never be Paul. How many of us have said that? How many of us have ever said, I'll never be that guy? That'll never happen. I mean, think about this guy's life, right? So the beginning of his life as a believer starts with like a visible encounter with Jesus on a road, right? Not me. <laughs> That's a big, big deal. Think about what else has happened in his life. Three times shipwrecked, lost at sea for a 24-hour period of time. Three times he was beaten with rods, like a big, like a caning kind of thing. Five times he was whipped, 39 lashes. He was thrown in prison where he's currently re writing this book and so many other things. It is so easy for us to say, I can never be Paul, right? But I think Paul knows that. And I think he's trying to blow up this whole entire paradigm of what we think a believer really is. And that's why he's setting forth these two great Christians. We do it. We do it. It isn't just Paul, right? We do it with other people. We say, John Piper, never be like him. Or Elizabeth Elliot, I'll never be like her. person who's gone through so much suffering in her life with her husband, would never be that. We say, oh, I'll never be a Billy Graham. It's not going to happen. Or maybe a Francis Chan. Maybe, maybe for you it's Louis or Shelley Giglio. You're like, no, it's never going to happen. Like, I'll never have the kind of faith in my Christian life to be like them. Because what we do categorically is we create two categories of the Christian life. We create one category, which are the super-Christians, okay, whether we say it or not, and then there's everybody else. And so if you're anything like me, if you kind of have a little bit of a pessimistic streak in you, you kind of go, you know, it's much better for me just to kind of lower the bar for myself and go, this is unattainable, so if I lower the bar a little bit more, I'll feel better about my life as a Christian, that's what we do, and we create these two categories. And I think fundamentally what Paul is trying to do is just completely blow that up and deconstruct it. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I believe very strongly that here it is. Paul is trying to break down these walls, and he's trying to provide a practical vision for modeling the gospel. I think he just wants to get right down to the brass tacks. He wants to say, this is what it really means to practically live out the gospel in your life. This is what this is all about, this whole entire uh, 11 verses this morning. And so he starts out with this guy named Timothy. So let me put the verses up on the screen behind us. Here we go. I'm going to read that to you. Verse 19 says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him. 
who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, and not of those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, and how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So the first example Paul is giving is this guy named Timothy. And he really wants us to catch this vision that we can, here it is, we can model our lives after those who model their lives after Jesus. That's what an example is. We can model our lives. We can see things in other people like Timothy who are following Christ, who are following Jesus, and we can model our lives after that person because they are modeling their life after Jesus. D.A. Carson puts it like this. He says in his book called Basics, much Christian character is as much caught as it is taught. We probably, most of us probably heard that little phrase. Think it, he goes, that is, it is picked up by the constant association with mature Christians. Modeling, modeling, it takes place all the time, whether we take it into our account or not. And so Jesus, so Paul is putting forth Timothy as a model of what Christian life could look like for other people. In Philippians 1, chapter 5, he calls, he says, this is what it really means to be a partner in the gospel. And he would say that Timothy is that guy. He's a partner with me in the gospel. In 1, 6, he says, to be a growing Christian, you need to have this affection for the church. Timothy has this affection. In, in Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, we have, need to have, um, consider others as more important than ourselves. Timothy does that. In fact, in, that, in those verses, he actually says that Timothy is going to go to Philippi, not because he's being an, a good little Christian who's being obedient, and because Paul, this super Christian, says you need to go do this, and so therefore he obeys, but rather he has affection for those people. He loves the church. He loves the people in the church. And so he goes and he's driven by that and not out of simply obedience or this is the right thing that a Christian does. In 6 verse 8, it says that Paul puts his obedience to Jesus over personal gain. Timothy does the same. And in uh, chapter 1 verse 12, Paul talks about uh, adversity as a way to advance the gospel. Same thing in which Timothy lives. Eventually, at this point in time, Paul is in prison, and he's in a very uh, adverse situation, isn't he? Eventually, Timothy also ends up in prison. And so here's this amazing, amazing guy. But I don't want you to take Timothy and stick him in the super Christian category like we want to do right now. I think you got to look at Timothy and say, this is an ordinary guy. He's not known for being the best communicator or having the great charisma, but he is known for these things. In fact, in Philippians 2.22, it says this, but you know Timothy's proven worth. You know his proven worth. You could actually translate it this way, but his proven worth you know. People know what Timothy is like. It's very well known and understood all in the church. Everybody gets it. Timothy is an amazing guy. He's probably a sinful guy. He is a sinful guy, but he's just a faithful follower of Jesus. Sorry, getting excited. So, 
Here's what I wonder. I wonder if that's our reputation. I wonder when people see our lives and we see, do people see the working of Jesus in us and, and that's our reputation? Or do we have maybe a different reputation? Maybe, maybe we have a reputation that actually draws people away from Christ because we're, maybe we're self-centered or maybe whatever thing you got going on. Or do people look at us and say, man, there's something different about Jason. I wonder why. I wonder what's up with that. Even for people who are far from Christ, like who have no desire to enter into a relationship with Jesus, maybe even for those people, they go, there's something different there. I'm not sure what it is, or I do know what it is, but I don't really want to believe it, but it's there. I think that's the question that we can ask about Timothy and how it connects to us. So then there's this other guy, Epaphroditus. Let me give you a little background on this guy. So Epaphroditus is uh, born from a pagan family. So his family was so pagan that they named him after the Greek god uh, Aphrodite, right? That's where his name came from. So here's a guy who's grown up his entire life as an idol worshiper. Like that's been the way his family has raised him. That's what his namesake is. And now all of a sudden he's flipped around, which is what Jesus does to people, and he's a Christ follower, that's huge right there, right? That's probably enough to go, okay, ordinary guy, amazing. Look what Jesus has done in his life. So let's read the rest of these verses because I think there's more amazing stuff. Verse 25 says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So this guy Epaphroditus was sent by the church in Philippi on a mission. Like he was like selected or maybe he volunteered. And basically what happened is they kind of got an offering together and they said, okay, we need to support Paul, especially since he's in prison. Maybe he needs some new clothes. Let's get some clothes together. Let's get some food and let's send our, you know, our little care package, who knows how many hundreds of miles away on foot to get to Paul. Chances are, if he was carrying these many, this, uh, you know, money and different things like that, if he would have traveled by himself, he probably would have gotten robbed. So he probably had a little entourage with him where this group of people all went. And at some point in time along uh, in this journey, either on the journey or shortly after they arrived to, in Paul, where Paul was in Rome, uh, he got sick. And he got so sick that he couldn't travel. And so what probably happened is the entourage says, we got to get home, like, this guy, I don't even know what's going to happen to him. We can't take him back with us, so we got to leave him here. And so they left him, and they headed back to Philippi. And that's how the people in Philippi found out that Epaphroditus was sick. Y'all follow me? So I think it's an important thing to know because it's kind of a, I mean, it's a little bit of speculation, but that's probably makes sense as to what, what's going on. And so he spent some time with Paul. So Paul's in prison, and now he's got this guy that's sick who might die. 
So uh, it's like just keeps on loading up on Paul, right? Just kind of adding up. And I think that's what Paul was talking about when he says sorrow upon sorrows. Is here's this guy coming, like I'm already in prison. Now I got a guy who's almost ready to die on me. You know, like that's like just an added thing to my plate. Um, Paul wasn't like superhuman. It wasn't like he's like, oh, you'll be fine, dude. You know, or he was just a normal guy. And that bothered him. And that's probably should bother him. But look at how he describes this guy when you look through this passage. He calls him a worker. Okay, This guy isn't some, some guy who just like, eh, I don't care, Jesus, whatever, here's your money, I'm going to do whatever. But he's a worker, he's a soldier, like he's all in. He loves Jesus and he's going to do whatever it takes. He's a messenger of the people, he's sent to Paul. He's a minister of, God's, of Paul's needs, he's sent there to actually serve Paul and take care of Paul. Paul saw him as a brother. Like there was this connection of him. When we become a, a, a believer, you were entered into a brotherhood, a family of God. It's called the body of Christ. And you have a natural connection with every single person who loves Jesus. And Paul is saying this is definitely the case with this guy, Epaphroditus. Especially when you go through a hard time. You guys have all experienced that. You go through a hard time with somebody. Some, you just get this natural bond with that person. And all those things are true. All those things are good, but here is the kicker of the passage. When you look at the passage, this guy Epaphroditus longs for home. He wants to be home. Maybe he has a family. He wants to be back in his community of Christians uh, in Philippi. But the thing that really bothers him is that these people were bugged, were upset that he was sick. <laughs> he wasn't upset that he was sick. He was upset that other people were upset that he was sick. Y'all follow that? That's weird. Like, I'm, I look at that and I go, man, if I get sick, I, I want somebody to feel sorry for me. I mean, if you're anything, I just want that. I want someone to like, hey, Jason, can I get you some soup? You know, something. I want something. But I'm not going, I'm so distressed that my wife is so upset that I'm sick. No, I'm like, I just want to be done being sick. It's all about me. But I think that's the kind of human being this guy is. He's almost near death. Like, he's almost died, and he's worried about everybody else. I think that's an amazing, amazing trait of a person that Paul's trying to put forward as a model for what the Christian life looks like. Could you imagine if that's the way we lived, if people saw when we got sick that that's the way we functioned, if that's the way we responded? Man, that would get some attention, right? That's amazing. And so Paul also saw him as a guy who was also bonding with him, and it was a co-laborer in the gospel. And he says he's valuable in that. At the end of that verse, he says, you need to honor this guy. He's been through a lot, and he loves Jesus, and here's all the traits of who he is. Let me read you this quote here by Frank Thielman. It says this. He says, Paul's joyful attitude in the midst of adversity did not exclude legitimate feelings of sorrow. So, so even though Paul was in an adverse situation, we think Paul the super Christian never ever had any sort of, um, like, he's like, oh yeah, I'm in prison, yay! And he's just like running around like a happy guy. I would say he was joyful. I would say we say, you know what? God is at work in my life in this moment, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm real super happy about this. I'm okay. And he goes on to say this. The joy that Paul experiences when the gospel makes progress is not a good happiness that overlooks pain and suffering. But, here it is, 
a mature understanding of God's ability to make his purposes prosper even amid human pain. So he understands that in the midst of human pain and in the midst of human suffering, God is still at work. And he's in work in multiple ways. He's in work in our hearts. He's in work in Epaphroditus' heart. He's in work in Paul's heart. But he's also, through that, in the work, working in the lives of other people who are around him. What a great model for what the Christian life looks like. So Paul gives Timothy and Epaphroditus, you got these two guys as examples, and here's what it is. He's communicating to the people in Philippi, and he's also communicating to us that we can model our lives after those who model their lives after Jesus. That's the key to this whole thing. We can model our lives after those who are modeling their lives after Christ. You may say, well, that's just in the Bible. You know, and we start to move those people to the super Christian category. But let me tell you what, there's people like that in this room. There's people who are like that who go to this church. And at the risk of forgetting somebody, at the risk of not mentioning somebody's name who I do value, I'm going to say, I'm just going to give you a list of people because I think it's helpful. And I hope for these people that I list, I hope it's an encouragement to you and to who you are and, and to spur you on in your faith. When I think about people in my life, people in my life I look at and I go, there's something about them that's different. There's something that about that, that is encouraging to me. Some of the, these are the people that come to mind quickly off the top of my head. Donna Jamie Lamming. There's one. I think they're steady. I think they're sure. And when I think about my marriage someday being empty nesters like them who love each other, that's what I want my life to look like. And I think that's Jesus at work in them. I think Marilyn Brown. When I think about people who pray, I think about Marilyn. It's constant for her. I, I want to pray like that. That's a model for my life. I think about Lydia Shanks. I think about her engaging and analyzing life and going, how does the gospel enter this? How do I, how do I deal with life that where Jesus is part of my worldview, part of my grid every single day? I think about our friend Alex, who came in, became a believer not too long ago. I think about him, and I think about what his life looked like before he knew Jesus and what it looks like now. And I think about, can my life look like that now? He's a new Christian, but fast forward to me, what's it look like? That's an encouragement for me. I think of John Linville, a guy that I've never met that who is more of a servant than this guy. I can call him up at any point in time, and he's like, I'll help you, whatever you need. He's a servant. I think of Brian Weeks. If you don't know Brian, I'm going to tell you something about him. I Never in my life have I ever met someone who's more of an encourager than Brian. Never. Like, I, I can have a conversation. I was like, well, that went okay. And then I'll get a text, like, later. Hey, dude, I really appreciate having a conversation. Like, that was so encouraging. Man, I just appreciate this. And I'm going, well, because he's just an encourager. It just oozes out of who he is. I think of my wife, Janelle who invests in ladies, who invests in other people, who takes time out of her week to go meet people at Chick-fil-A or out for coffee and throw the kids in the playland and then they just have a conversation about life and interjecting the gospel into those conversations. I think it's worth modeling. I think about the Grants, the Grant family and the Govert family. And I think about families that are moving through adversity with Jesus. 
Those are significant. There's a lot going on in those families that probably most of the people in this room have no idea. Lots of adversity, but they keep pressing in to Jesus. And there's tons more. There's tons of people that I know that eat outside this church. It doesn't mean that like this is exclusive to this place. And there's tons of people more in this church. I could go on and on and on. So please don't feel left out. Be encouraged. Because I think there's people like that. Lots of people like that. See, good fruit from other believers is encouraging for my faith. That's how modeling works. When I see people who are getting it, and these people don't get everything right, but they certainly excel in these areas for sure. And I go, that's amazing. I love that. That's an encouragement to my heart and to my soul. They're not super Christians. We don't take all these people and move them to the super Christian category, right? They're just normal people, sinners who are just faithfully following Jesus. But yet we can still model them. Let me put that quote back up on the screen from D.A. Carson. Much Christian character is as much caught as taught. That is, it's picked up by constant association with mature Christians. Modeling. Modeling, it takes place all the time, whether we take it into account or not. You know, I wonder sometimes, I think in life, when we're kind of cruising through life, we kind of make some choices. And I would say a lot of times for me and probably for you, you kind of have to adjust your priorities as you go on. Because you discover things about your life. You're like, oh, I'm spending time doing this. And that's not really helpful for me as a Christian. Like if I would take this time and maybe cut that in half and then spend it with somebody like D.A. Carson is saying, a mature believer, that would be helpful for me as a Christian. I think sometimes what happens is we need to kind of completely reorient our lives because I think there are people that, friends of mine, that orient their entire lives around maybe a group that just party a lot. And if you think that you can have that as your primary friend group and not be influenced by that, you're probably mistaken. But if you shift it over here and you start surrounding yourselves with other people who are on the same page and who are aligning with you, who are also following Jesus, who are moving that way, that's helpful for your Christian walk. doesn't mean you abandon this group over here. It's just that this is your primary, this is your secondary. These people need to know Jesus. They need to come this way, not you getting sucked into their mess. That's how influence works, and it does go both directions with all this stuff. Well, you may be sitting here and asking yourself the question. I asked myself the question. Why not just bypass people and just... Model your life after Jesus, right? Right? People are flawed. People are sinners. We'll just bypass that. We'll do what Jesus said. Well, I don't have an awesome answer for that, except for the Bible says that we should model our lives after people. Check out these two verses here. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says this. Paul is saying this. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. There is something to that. And the other verse says this, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, 4. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. What he's saying is we spent some time with you and you saw our lives. You saw how Jesus was moving in our hearts. And you saw that that was different. Do the same. That's a good thing. Because we're following Jesus. If you follow us, you're also following Christ. 
So biblically speaking, I think it's there. I think it would be much easier just to say, the Christian life is about me and Jesus, and I don't really need people. But for some reason, God puts it in there that we need relationships. And even when it comes to, to changing and sanctification and transformational growth that comes from inside, we need people have to be around us. So Paul wants us to know that this practical vision comes when we can model our lives after those who model Christ. That's what we just read in those verses, right? But the final thing I think that we can infer from this, and this is the final thing I'm going to say, is that others can model their lives after us when we model our lives after Jesus. Or others can model their lives after us when we model our lives after those who model their lives after Jesus. Y'all follow me? Because I think that's the reality of all this stuff. Paul's saying if we could deconstruct the super Christian and the normal Christian thing, it's all like this. And with the Holy Spirit work in our lives, it's attainable. And I would venture to say this. A lot of times we're wondering, what is God's will for my life? This is God's will for your life. I think I can definitively say that. It's not that God, I can say, God wants you to take this job or this job. That's not what I'm saying. But when it comes to God's moral will, when it comes to God saying, what kind of character do, you, do I want you to have? What sort of relationships do I want you to have? I think biblically speaking, you can sit back and say, God's will is that you would press in to mature Christians who are following Jesus and that you would press in to Jesus and become a mature Christian. I think that's what he wants from every single one of us. So that's God's will. You want to know what God's will is? That's it. So when you look at life and you look at this passage, um, really a practical vision for, the, for modeling the gospel is where others would want to model their lives after our example. That's, that's a vision that you can have for your life. That you can live the kind of life so connected to Jesus that your life changes that other, other people want to be like you because you're trying to be like Christ. So how do, how do you get there? Two, two things. First, it all starts with Jesus. He's the one who gives us the vision. He's the one who empowers us for change. He's the perfect example of life and living. He's the perfect sacrifice. And our role is to simply surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We say, God, my life is all yours. Take it and change it. Do whatever you want. I'm going to follow you and I'm going to respond to your greatness. So if I want to be a, a model for the grace of God in my life and I want to be influential in the lives of other people, I have to fix my eyes on Jesus. I have to. He's the only one that matters anyway. He's my God. He's my Lord. And he's at work in us and through us. Check out this verse in uh, John 7, 37. says this. I think this is a really cool verse. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. So imagine this. So Jesus kind of standing up, and then he cries out. Okay, so the picture is, this is a big deal, right? He's getting everybody's attention, and he's crying out to everybody. He's not sitting over in the corner and kind of politely whispering, hey, psh, just want to let you know this. He's standing up, and he's crying out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers 
of living water. That's exactly what happens. As we experience Christ, we press into him, the natural outflowing, our live, living waters. That's what it means to model the Christian life. As you live a life that is so connected to Christ that it just kind of oozes out of you. Changes you from the inside out. So it's nothing fancy, really. It's not like these 12 steps will get you there. It's not like if you're just more, if you would just be more diligent at doing this and this and this, then you would be the super Christian. No. There is no columns. It's all the same. It's the same God at work in Paul as it is in me and it is in you. So that's the first one. Starts with Jesus. Second, if we want to model the grace of God, we have to be in relationship with people. And we need to pick those wisely. If we want to learn about how people are models, how they're doing it, how that functions in their lives, then we need to get to know those people. We need to get to know that list of people and more in this room. I'm going to encourage you to press in on that. Relationships have to be a priority. They have to be. It's the reason that every single person who walks through that door hears about community groups about every week or two. It's because we believe that in the midst of community group and these relationships, that's where maturity happens. We believe it. It gives you a chance to rub elbows with other people who are mature believers and to catch something. That's why we do it. That's why we do a women's event. That's why we do a coffee and canvas. It's because our hope for ladies that you would come to that event and you would hit it off with somebody who would either just spend some time with you or you would spend some time with them. That you would have a conversation centered upon Jesus and you'd be able to say, this is my struggle. And that the gospel comes in and revolutionizes your life. That's why we do it. It's why we do an men's event. It's why we do our meet cross point lunch. Is that we, we want people to be on this track and headed that direction. And it starts with us getting to know each other. That's why we do all those things. They're purposeful. They have meaning. They're strategic. Because ultimately we want people to drink of the waters of the Almighty. That's it. And so that out of our hearts will flow this living water. That's what we want for people. This is the vision. I think this is the vision that Paul's trying to put forth. And it's not that pie in the sky. It's not for super Christians. It's for everybody. It's very attainable. But it's only attainable because it's the work of Christ in us. Please, if you heard this whole time, you need to try harder, you need to do more, do more, do more, then you heard the wrong message this morning. But if you heard that you need to surrender to Jesus and he does a great work and you just let him do his thing, and you respond to him, you heard the right thing. If you heard, I need to rub shoulders with people who love Jesus more, you probably heard the right thing. If you heard, maybe you need to reorient your, orient your life a little bit, you probably heard the right thing. Because Paul's setting forth these two examples, and then I'm setting forth these other ones in this room, of people who have been empowered to obey through the Holy Spirit, who are living out the gospel and who are models for us. And so Paul just kind of is blowing up this paradigm over and over, this idea of super Christian and everybody else. 
What if we saw every single person as just a sinner who's being faithful? What if we saw other Christians that way? We'd be probably be a lot more forgiving of each other, first of all. And second of all, we wouldn't put people on a pedestal because we would understand the reality of who they are. What if we saw ourselves that way? What if we saw ourselves as a, like a dad or a mom or a friend or a brother or a sister who's just a sinner, who's faithfully following Jesus, and just wanting God to use them? What if we, that's just how we saw our lives? It's pretty simple. Maybe we need a practical vision. We just need like an overhaul of our perspective, right? That the Holy Spirit could do such an amazing work in our hearts, in our lives, that we could be a model for the gospel at our jobs or in our homes or in our neighborhoods. That would be amazing. I think it's already happened. Please don't hear me say that it's not happening because I think it's definitely happening. But I think there are some people that are being held back and like, yeah, I, I feel pretty useless. I don't really know that anything's happening. I don't feel like I'm growing as a Christian, and I don't definitely don't feel like I'm influential. Could it happen? Could something amazing happen in my life, in your life, if we just remove our gaze from all these distractions and we just focus on Jesus? That we'd surround ourselves with other people who love Jesus and we just catch it.